Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. In early June, President Trump announced that he'll start to withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement. As someone who cares deeply about the environment, I cannot in good conscience support a deal that punishes the United States. The decision disappointed many people as a missed opportunity. I don't think his pulling out of the climate agreement will actually make much difference on climate. I think it makes much more difference on giving up our leadership in the world. But despite the government's position, U.S. businesses are embracing a clean energy future. This idea that we could somehow go back to traditional industry is just a wrong-headed idea because we have these technology transformations that are truly revolutionary. Trumping the climate, coming in hot. Up next on Climate One. What does the Trump administration's withdrawal from the Paris Climate Accord mean for U.S. climate leadership? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Devin Strolovich. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. In early June, President Trump announced that he'll start to withdraw the country from the Paris Climate Agreement reached by 195 countries, claiming it disadvantaged the United States. In fact, the deal allows each country to set their own customized and voluntary path toward energy fitness. The U.S. plan includes a mix of more efficient cars, cleaner power plants, and a variety of technology and actions by cities and states. Other countries took different approaches, depending on their industries, natural resources, culture, and politics. To talk about the Paris Agreement, the Trump administration, and more, Greg is joined by three guests. Gil Duran is a former spokesman for California Governor Jerry Brown and U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. He's a current advisor to billionaire climate advocate Tom Steyer and works on communications with author and linguist George Lakoff. Amy Jaffe is executive director of sustainability at the University of California Davis Graduate School of Management. For 18 years, she was director of research on energy and geopolitics at the Baker Institute of Public Policy at Rice University in Houston. Jim Sweeney is director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University. He's a professor of management and engineering and served in the Federal Energy Administration under President Ford. Here's our conversation about trumping the climate, coming in hot. We're talking about this on the day that President Trump announced the exit from the Paris Climate Agreement. I want to begin with uh, what he said today. This is President Trump uh, announcing his intention to, over the next few years, withdraw the United States from the Paris Climate Accord. Let's listen. In order to fulfill my solemn duty to protect America and its citizens, the United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. As president, I can put no other consideration before the well-being of American citizens. The Paris Climate Accord is simply the latest example of Washington entering into an agreement that disadvantages the United States to the exclusive benefit of other countries, leaving American workers, who I love, and taxpayers to absorb the cost in terms of lost jobs, lower wages, shuttered factories, and vastly diminished 
economic production. Thus, as of today, the United States will cease all implementation of the non-binding Paris Accord and the draconian financial and economic burdens the agreement imposes on our country. Not only does this deal subject our citizens to harsh economic restrictions, it fails to live up to our environmental ideals. As someone who cares deeply about the environment, which I do, <laughs> I cannot in good conscience support a deal that punishes the United States. President Trump announcing withdrawal of the Paris Climate Accord in early June. Uh, Jim Sweeney, a lot in there, lost jobs. But first of all, how did you feel? You knew this was coming. How did you feel when you heard about that and saw that? Well, most graphically, it was as if I was watching a spider with a fly sucking the life out of it. And I said, this was the symbol of our nation speaking there. It was very sickening. You thought it was a sad day. I, look, at I was, we all saw it coming. It was a sad day because, one, climate matters. Two, because the Paris Agreement wasn't going to hurt our economy in the slightest. And because, finally, we have given up world leadership on yet another thing. And I think we've ceded world leadership on this to Germany and China. And so it was really, in many ways, very sad day for the United States above and beyond the climate issues because I don't think his pulling out of the climate agreement will actually make much difference on climate. I think it makes much more difference on giving up our leadership in the world. Amy Jaffe, how did you feel when you heard the news, when you, you saw that statement about draconian burdens and those sorts of things? You know, I was in line buying my lunch, and I was sort of reading it um, on the sort of teleprompter, you know, what the TV was on silent. And uh, it was almost surreal. You know, I am a, always an eternal optimist. And I really, even though every day in my Twitter feed, it's like, oh, yes, he's going to pull out of Paris, I really kind of felt in my heart that it's such a stupid thing to do that in the end, it wouldn't happen, right? But I, I comforted- You thought Rex Tillerson could talk him out of it. You know, you know, the truth is, people were saying that Rex Tillerson was gonna talk him out of it. And you know, if you think about how far we've come in terms of corporate response to climate change and all these things, the idea that as a country, we were counting on Rex Tillerson to talk <laughs> some sense into the president, you know, is really sort of an amazing statement. But, you know, I talked to some journalists as it was sort of unwinding before, you know, today, and, and really, truly, a lot of climate policy in this country is both designed and implemented at the state and city level. Um, they're at the forefront, always have been in the forefront, and you just have to roll the clock back a little at time and remember that under President George W. Bush, um, a lot of states took initiative. And I used to tell people when I give talks in Europe and people were so upset about American policy, about Kyoto, and I would say, well, you know, U.S. policy on climate is not actually made at the federal level. And even if you look at the Clean Power Plan, which was the fundamental showpiece of President Obama's signatory to this climate agreement in Paris. You know, most states in the United States have made their commitments under the Clean Power Plan, and most states are not gonna unwind those policies because they're driving uh, innovation in the state, they're attracting corporations that have already made commitments to renewable energy, um, people are seeing it as future jobs. We've got China with a carbon price. We have Europe with strong technology drive coming from their car industry and from their trucking industry and from um, other, other segments. And so really, truly, um, when the president says that there were all these draconian things that his predecessor agreed to, a lot of those things are gonna stay in place. And one last point, not to overstate this, but the one thing that I might have guessed as an energy expert 
that the president would unravel and would make it hard for us to meet our climate obligation under Paris was that President Obama committed to have the oil and gas industry capture their methane leakage. And our Congress, surprisingly, sustained that policy, right? And so the president couldn't even undo that proposed regulation. So it is a little bit um, disingenuous to talk about these onerous things that we agreed to since we're probably going to do most of those things. John McCain came in and uh, offered a decisive vote on that, uh, keeping those methane regulations in place. Gil Duran, uh, let's talk about three different touchstones, democracy, economy, and the environment. You, and the narrative that's been put forward here by the president saying that action on climate hurts jobs. Touch those three stones for us. Well, this whole ex the whole Trump experience has been a waking nightmare. And so this is just the latest installment. Um, and but at this point, it's sort of something we're uh, becoming accustomed to, sadly, because it's it's constant. It doesn't stop. And so really, to me, the most striking thing, because we knew this was coming, was that every single thing Donald Trump said was the opposite of the truth. It was the reverse of the truth. And this is very deliberate and it's by design. It's to tell this other reality uh, that in reality, when we talk about the, the role of the economy and, and the role climate action plays in the economy, um, it's our biggest opportunity. And China certainly realizes that what, what Trump is doing is against prosperity. Uh, when we talk about democracy and standing up and doing what's right for the American people, this action only serves a very narrow interest of American society, people in fossil fuel companies. This is the opposite. This is against the best interests of the American people. Um, it's against democracy. You know, we know that majorities of people, even in, in Republican majority states, supported staying in Paris and support climate action. Um, and so uh, you know, everything he said was the opposite of the truth. And, and we see this across the board on all of the issues. And to me, that's the scariest thing about it is when you're in a democracy and you're doing nothing but lying, what is your actual strategy and what is your, your end game? Jim Sweeney, there's an amazing array of people and institutions that came out in recent days in support of the Paris Climate Agreement. As Amy just mentioned, Rex Tillerson, former CEO of ExxonMobil, Gary Cohn, chair of the National Economic Council, Arch Cole, Peabody Cole, Chevron, Exxon, ConocoPhillips, uh, IBM, Coke and Pepsi, when are they on the same side? Uh, Lin Lindsey Graham, uh, John McCain, all in favor of Paris. And uh, when the president, uh, it was clear he was gonna pull out of uh, the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, Jeff Immelt, CEO of General Electric, said, quote, climate change is real. Industry must now lead and not depend on government. So where does industry go? Um, I think this is actually consistent with what's been happening over the last 20, 30 years now. Um, what I found is quite remarkable is that the energy per dollar of GDP in the U.S. economy has been declining about 2% a year average for the last 40 years since the oil crisis in 1973. Some of that was federal government, the fuel efficiency standards. Some of it was what the state and local governments did. California's done a lot. But a large amount was what industry has been doing in innovating in ways to reduce energy in the products. General Electric has been a wonderful example. I mean, even the airlines, which we all love to hate, it's interesting to know that uh, since the oil crisis in 73, they use half as much energy per seat mile as they did in 73, but per person mile, they use a quarter as much energy. And this has been all private sector. Well, how does that math work? Are some people math. standing? How does that math work? Yeah, the planes are a lot fuller, if anybody's ever noticed okay. this. Okay. <laughs> and, and, but it's dynamic pricing. You check on the price of the flights one day. You go to buy it three days later. It's an entirely different price. You try to use your frequent flyer miles, and... You can't use it on this flight, but you can use it on that flight. It's all part of large-scale optimization problems that the airlines use in order to keep the planes full and so as to um, 
make more profit. But in the act of making more profit, uses less energy per seat mile. So right now, Jeff Immelt was absolutely right. Industry is going to take a lead in innovation, but so are states and local governments. Uh, you see cities around the United States and Canada that are taking very innovative steps in order to have more efficient use of energy or have cleaner energy. And I kind of keep focusing on more efficient use of energy because by a factor of 10 to 1, that's how we've decarbonized our economy, much more than the cleaner energy. It's been energy efficiency. So it's been industry, state, and local governments, and individual households with change of attitudes. Those are going to have to keep happening, and people are going to have to say, just because the federal government's not doing it, just because the federal government leadership have their head in the stands, we don't have to. Because after all, an industry making a decision on its investments in new technologies is not going to look just four years in advance. They look a long ways down the road. So people have to believe that after Trump, whenever that Trump administration ends, they're going to have to live with the reality. And so I think industry is going to look beyond this. We're hearing about the Trump administration and the Paris Climate Agreement. This is Climate One. You can subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will continue his conversation in just a moment. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the Paris Climate Agreement with Gil Duran, an advisor to billionaire climate advocate Tom Steyer. Amy Jaffe, Executive Director of Sustainability at the University of California Davis Graduate School of Management and Jim Sweeney, director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Texas is one state that's uh, moved ahead on clean energy, uh, surprising to many people. In 2014, uh, current Energy Secretary Rick Perry came to Climate One and talked about Texas leading the way on renewable energy. Let's listen to then-Governor Rick Perry. We started a boom in Texas in the renewable energy sector. Uh, today, the nation's leading developer of wind energy is not one of those progressive states on the East Coast or the West Coast. The number one wind energy producing state in the nation is along the Gulf Coast. It's in Texas. We built a new network of transmission lines to bring that energy from uh, the areas of the state where it is best produced, which is up in the panhandle of Texas, to uh, the population centers over in the eastern side of our state. And our state is friendly to uh, the development of all forms of energy, from wind and solar to clean coal to natural gas and to nuclear, for that matter. Then Governor Rick Perry talking about clean energy. Uh, Amy Jaffe, you worked in Texas a long time, Texas Energy. A lot of Texas ranchers love wind on their ranches. Is Texas going to keep going forward? Talk to us about green energy in the red state of Texas. You know, I think that Texas is going to find the same thing that we're finding here in California. We're making such breakthrough in um, how to use utility scale batteries to couple with wind and solar and then have more complicated you know, software and uh, management of the grid, um, that we're going to make a lot of things more possible. And this whole, you know, I never, I never hear today, you know, people from Texas explain to me, don't you understand it's intermittent? Like, you don't even say that anymore because you can see the solutions. They're right on the horizon. And honestly, truly, when you go down, people want to talk about that so-called S-curve concept. You know, when do we think that some of these technologies, not that they'll hit because we're already deploying them, but when will they start to scale up in terms of their size and impact in the market? And, you know, I like, when I go down to Texas, I like to remind people that as proactive as Governor Brown has been, as proactive as industry's been here in California, nothing made it happen faster than the Aliso Canyon accident. And that was a, a big leak of uh, natural gas, methane, that uh, massive amounts of methane leaked into the air in Southern California. And it made people sick. 
So, so the point is that we have these reasons um, why we're going to do these things, and we have market forces that are going to bring them to market. And, and I, I really think, you know, I mean, maybe it's Pollyanna-ish, but I just think, you know, I used to tell people, you know, when I think about some of the things that the president says about certain industries, right? I mean, in the end, even the coal industry is going to robotics and self-driving trucks. So, you know, when you think about it truly, if somebody came to you and told you that you could save a lot of money on your phone bill if you would go back to a landline and they, that you could elect a president who would put pay phones back in in airports and on street corners, would anybody pick to do that just to be able to pay a $25 phone bill? No, no one's picking that. Why? Because the phone you are carrying around in your pocket is a superior technology. And if we all went back to pay phones, right? No one in China is going back to pay phones. People in Latin America are not going back to pay phones. People in Africa are not going back to pay phones. So this idea that we could somehow go back to traditional industry, right? is just a wrong-headed idea because we do, we have these technology transformations that are truly revolutionary. And, um, and, and, and the industry understands that, but saying on the flip side to people in California and other states that are really competing in renewables, you know, that same technology revolution is happening in the natural gas industry, right? And so, you know, if the competitive price point for clean technology is going to be that it has to beat natural gas. You know, there is so much natural gas in the United States. I mean, the price of natural gas at some point a few years from now, in some locations in economics, we have this concept, we call it the shadow price. So that's what is in the real world. What is the real effective price when you think about everything else that happens in the world? And there are places in Texas and Pennsylvania where the shadow price for natural gas is going to be zero. They'll pay you to take it away. They'll pay uh, you to take it away. And coal is a very, very small part of the U.S. economy. Jim Sweeney, uh, you've been in this a long time, since the 70s. Energy did not used to be a partisan issue until the Obama administration. So tell us uh, how that came, how energy be, and climate came to be so partisan and areas where Democrats and Republicans have in the past worked very consistently on these issues. Uh, I started my time in energy at the time of the oil crisis, 1973, 1974, and I was in the Ford administration. Passed and signed into law under Gerald Ford, fuel efficiency standards, the first ever efficiency standard law for appliances, um, a whole group of other laws to uh, move the energy system uh, forward. Since that time, we've had energy efficiency standards implemented through the Department of Energy, expanded or extended by almost every president from Gerald Ford up to Barack Obama. The only person who did not sign such a law was Bill Clinton. <laughs> so we have four Republican presidents who've extended energy efficiency legislation. Um, as well as started the CAFE standards. EPA was founded under a Republican um, president. So up until, I would say, at the beginning of the Obama administration, pretty much energy and, and climate was quite bipartisan. You saw some of the leaders of the Republican Party who ran for president supported um, dealing with climate. Uh, Romney wanted to deal with, with climate issues. So did McCain. Yeah. McCain did as well. But it seemed like once Obama was in, the Republicans in Congress took a view as anything that uh, Obama's for were against. And they really seemed to have hardened their position during that time. Of, and you see this in healthcare. You see this in climate. It was if Obama has had any successes, we're gonna to try to rip it down. So sometimes I wonder why it was that, that Trump right now felt you had to get out of the Paris 
climate agreement where he's really not going to make much difference other than giving up our mantle of leadership. Could it be more of a personal thing that he has a vendetta? He has to pull down everything that uh, President Obama built up rather than because of any rational thinking. So it, it was really in that time it's turned around from what I view as a very conservative view. The conservative view is the natural resources of our nation or the world are worth conserving because they're part of the vitality of our nation. And, and that's really sadly has gone to pieces. Jim Sweeney is director of the Precourt Center for Energy Efficiency at Stanford. Also Amy Jaffe from University of California at Davis and Gil Duran, former spokesman for Dianne Feinstein and Jerry Brown. I'm Greg Dalton. Yes, Amy Jaffe. So, you know, I do want to make this one statement since we're, you know, been sort of negative on the president's comments today. The president did say in his remarks that this climate accord let India and some of the other developing countries off very easily, and that we're letting them pretend they're part of the accord, or, or pretend maybe is not the proper word, but letting them participate in this accord, but go forward with tremendous pollution from coal uh, production and use. And, and he specifically called out India, which really was you know, very hard to get into the accord and was very uh, limited in what they offered. And you know, even in China, um, the concessions that they made on the coal industry and others were, were also, you know, fairly, fairly constrained. And, and I do think the president is right. I do think that our negotiators could have been tougher in demanding a better pledge um, from some of these countries and that there was this excitement to have an agreement and an accord and people felt the symbolism of it was important, which I totally agree with. Um, but it does leave some questions about you know, had we pushed a little bit harder, could we have gotten a little bit more of a commitment out of those countries? And so I understand all the rhetoric that came in the speech today, and a lot of it was, you know, um, very, I don't even know what the right adjective is, right? But, but I think what I would tell you is, because I always look at what's the opportunity, Though the, the reality is that most of the carbon emission that's ever been emitted up there is red, white, and blue. Historically, uh, the United States has put far more up there and put, created no much more to the problem than no the poor question. people of India, whose per capita carbon emissions is about one-tenth of what you're in mind. There's no question that that's true. But in thinking about the global community and the path forward, having people in India catch up by adding so much and not coming up with solutions to help people in India get access to electricity and services in a way um, that might be more positive for the climate. Like, I still think there's an opportunity there. I call on the administration to actually actively try to get that opportunity and not just have it be about the United States not making its commitment, have this actually be turned into a positive where we try to actually get better commitments. And maybe even if we get the better commitments by accident because we are so remiss in our leadership that other countries need to step up to the plate and show more leadership, we still need to see more leadership from these countries. Bit of a false choice because, I mean, India is, has much lower income and that's what hung up the previous climate agreements. I want to go to our lightning round. I'm going to ask each of you uh, some quick questions for quick answers. Uh, the first part is association. I will mention an, uh, a noun or a phrase, and you're going to tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. First, for Jim Sweeney, Mitt Romney's plan for climate action. Very positive. Amy Jaffe, clean coal. No such thing. Gil Duran, Scott Pruitt. Uh, stooge. <laughs> Amy Jaffe, fracking. Fracking, a pejorative term for a process which is, can be done safely but has caused a lot of problems in many locations in the United States. Jim Sweeney, Rex Tillerson. I really was impressed, and like Amy, I had hoped he would turn Trump around, but he failed to do that. Gil Duran, uh, California Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom. On the right side of this one. Uh, true or false, uh, Jim Sweeney, Donald Trump has the temperament to be president of the United States. 
I'm just going to laugh at that one. No, uh, he doesn't. Of course not. Amy Jaffe, true or false? Uh, fossil fuel companies have funded university research as part of their campaign to protect their profits. You know, yes and no. There have been fossil fuel companies that have funded fundamental science in biofuels, in solar, and other things. And that's not to say that there aren't some fossil fuel companies that have funded climate denying, but you have to take the whole picture. Uh, Jim Sweeney, Exxon, gave $100 million for research at Stanford. Uh, fossil fuel company funding has compromised some research independence at Stanford. True or false? Uh, absolutely false. Uh, Stanford has had complete control um, of the big picture. Um, however, uh, complete's a little bit hard. If they wanted to do something really wacky, they couldn't get it. But Stanford had great control, and this has greatly advanced the amount of clean energy research going on at Stanford, and it's really clean energy research that's advanced. Stanford professor Mark Jacobson had a different answer to that question when he was here, uh, saying there was some compromise. Uh, true or false, Jim Sweeney, protests of fossil fuel projects will become increasingly frequent and chaotic. Oh, yes. I Look, at when, when the federal government starts backing out this way, the private sector and private individuals have no other option but to go in and protest and do their own thing. Gil Duran, true or false, billionaire investor Tom Steyer is itching to run for public office, but he hasn't yet decided which one. I'd say that uh, Tom Steyer is looking for the best way to be the most effective uh, in terms of helping to uh, push back against some of what's happening right here in the Trump era, and if that includes public office, that's a possibility, but it's not a foregone conclusion. How's that for an artful answer? Gil Durand, uh, true or false, rather than demonizing fossil fuel workers and companies, citizens concerned about the climate should listen more to them and shout less at them. Not when they've captured our government at the highest levels. True or false, Jim Sweeney, you'd like to have a beer with Steve Bannon. Uh, what would I do with the beer? <laughs> do I have to actually drink it or could I pour it <laughs> on his head? Last one, Amy Jaffe, true or false, you'd like to have Donald Trump over for dinner. Well, so I have to say, <laughs> I have to say to everyone, I know a lot of people here are listening and in the audience are from California, but I'm actually a New Yorker, and I remember Donald Trump when he was a young man in New York. And that was a different person, I think, than we see on the national stage today. And that person was very entertaining, so just saying. So that's a yes. Let's give them a round for getting through the um, <laughs> lightning round. <clears throat> Start spreading the news. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the Paris Climate Agreement in the age of Trump. You can check out our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton will be back with his guests in just a moment. New York, New York. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about the Paris Climate Agreement and the Trump presidency with Gil Duran former spokesman for California Governor Jerry Brown and U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, Amy Jaffe, Executive Director of Sustainability at the University of California Davis Graduate School of Management, and Jim Sweeney, Director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University. Here's Greg. Gil Durant, let's look to 2018. Uh, Tom Steyer has, you know, trying to get advocates and, and positions and uh, candidates in place. What do you see as the electoral map for 18? And are voters really going to care about this then? Because typically voters don't really have environment and climate top of their mind when they pull that lever. Well, there's plenty of, t of issues to pick from uh, that Trump and his uh, band are creating tremendous amounts of anxiety around. And so I think looking ahead, uh, you know, we need to capture uh, 24 seats in order to take back the House, that's a huge target. And I think people are really looking right now, planning. It's too early to tell exactly where all the opportunities will be, because remember, we're only six months into this, and who knows what the 
heck's going to be happening in the next six months that might change the dynamic in some way. Um, you know, a harder job over in the Senate uh, where only eight Republican seats are up and a lot of those are going to be really tough, not as many pickup opportunities. But uh, those of us who do politics for a living, our one solace is that we do have 2018 right around the corner and that will be the biggest opportunity to start um, undoing uh, some of what's been going on in the past uh, six months. Jim Sweeney, Jeff Bingaman was a longtime uh, Democratic senator from New Mexico, chair of the Senate Energy Committee. He talked to you. He's now has an affiliation with, with Stanford. What did he tell you about his Republican colleagues and what they think and know about climate? I thought that's very interesting. The question was, why is it a litmus test of the Republicans in Congress to not believe in the climate science? And he said, your question's wrong. Other than Senator Edtoff, among the senators, they all understand the climate issues. They believe in it. They, they, they believe the climate problems are real. They're getting worse. Humans are causing it. But they also believe in one other reality, that if they admit that they believe in climate issues, once they get back to their district, they'll be accused of being a moderate. And if they get accused of being a moderate, you don't need half of the population in your district to get you out of office. All you need to have is a little over half of the people of your party to attack you, to, to get out of the office. And then if you recognize that, that there's a group of people who feel quite passionately about being very right, 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 that will then get together and push you out Therefore, the rational response of the most of the members of, of the Senate is don't talk about climate and act as if they don't believe in, in, in the, the, the science, even if they do. The unfortunate element about this, some of my academic colleagues and for me in the past thought, maybe if we educate the members of Congress, that will fix the problem. Well, they're already educated what they're, the only thing that's going to turn it around is when we now have a majority of the Republicans in the various districts that say, we got to do something. These big storms that are hitting us are getting too bad, or the sea rise that are, that are lapping at our coast are getting too too. Uh, and once you get enough of those turnover, I think that, that there's a hope to have the Republicans totally flip over in their attitudes. Carlos Curbelo is a, a Republican member of Congress who represents the southern tip of Florida. Don't buy any property there. Uh, and he is one of those people. But Gil Duran, this gets to the point. One of the things that makes this credible, this threat that Jim Sweeney's talking about, is Citizens United and the prospect of big money coming in from out of a district to fund a primary challenge against a Republican who takes a stand on climate. So get, let's get to the campaign funding piece of this. And uh, just uh, Bob Inglis a poster child of uh, his, his kids convinced him that, that climate change was real. And he started doing a lot of research. He said, boy, it's real. And he came out with that position, gone. Republican, I'm married from, out, uh, Republican uh, members of the House <coughs> Representatives. From South Carolina. And people saw Bob Inglis get pushed out by a Tea Party challenge. Yep. Didn't want to be that. So Gil Duran, campaign funding, is that the problem? Yeah, I think the one of the things that's frustrating for people who care about science, who accept science, who care about this particular issue is that for many people, this is actually not about science. This is about ideology. And it's about an extreme anti-public ideology, uh, um, an ideology of what I call market worshipers who want everything to just be based on what they call a free market, which happens to be stacked completely in their advantage. Uh, they want no rules. They want no protections. They want to be able to do exactly what they want when they want to do it. And you have these billionaires. Uh, many, I think, of the Koch brothers' annual meeting is now up to 500 members. It was 18 maybe you know, 10, 15 years ago, who are stockpiling their money in order to put it into elections, in order to create things like the Tea Party movement, like uh, Americans for Prosperity, that just constantly pressure people to not accept anything 
that is good for most people, but that's good for this small sliver of very wealthy interests, and that includes rejecting climate science. It, it includes rejecting the idea of public funding for things like schools, uh, rejecting health care coverage for the majority of Americans, and that's what we're dealing with. This is not about whether we have science on our side. We know we do. It's about this cancerous ideology uh, on the conservative side that really wants to destroy much of what we consider American values. We're talking about the Paris Climate Accord and our democracy at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton with Gil Duran, Amy Jaffe, and Jim Swinney. Uh, we're going to go to our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi, I'm Lila Holzman. I'm a native Californian, but I've lived in a few other states. I actually went to Rice University in Texas. Um, and my question is about the idea that was mentioned earlier about the, I think someone said even most states are planning to implement parts of the Clean Power Plan despite Trump pulling out of the Paris Agreement. But I would love to hear a little more discussion about is that really true? And we've got leaders like Texas, California, and New York, but are the other states actually going to step up or is this really kind of a pipe dream. So and Texas says they can meet uh, the clean power plan without any, uh, they would have met it without Obama. So, so, so let me tell you a true story. I was uh, speaking at a electricity conference um, in Florida last summer, and it was uh, a lot of the different PUCs were there and all the different utilities and everybody was there. And it was a very mixed group because there's many different states, some red states, some blue states, and it was before the election. And we all know what a charged atmosphere it was, and you know how charged an atmosphere it is. And of course, I'm coming there speaking as a professor at the University of California, so that makes it even worse because now I'm here and I've got all these people in this audience and I'm talking about you know, the clean vision. And, um, and what did I say? And I actually had these slides that showed all the corporations across the United States that have committed to going to 100% renewables. And I'm not just talking about Google and data centers, you know, California-centric companies. I'm talking about companies like uh, Walmart and GE. And so I, um, I was making that point, and I was sort of showing a map, and I was showing um, places that were red states that um, have these headquarters there, and they're going to really be pushed to stay with the renewable story. And after my talk, a gentleman came up to me from Georgia. He was with the PUC in Georgia, and he identified himself as a Trump delegate. And he explained to me that everything I had said in my talk was true. That in Georgia, you know, they were gonna do renewables, come hell or high water, that he named some corporations that were in Georgia that were demanding renewables, and they were going to have to do that to keep those jobs in the state. But then he pointed something out to me, um, and he wanted my reaction. And it was very hard to sort of think on my feet as to what to say. And he said that those corporations were getting federal subsidies to be able to do those renewables. And that for him to be able to balance the system in Georgia, he was having to raise the prices to his rate base, and that that meant that people who are retirees and people on fixed income and people living on low income were being forced with these higher electricity prices to balance out the fact that some rich corporation was getting a subsidy to go 100% renewables. And he was pretty embittered about it. Um, and what I would say to you is, when we think about the energy transition, we have to think about how to maintain mobility and services for the poorest Americans in a way that's fair. And if we don't consider that, it's gonna be harder to get our infrastructure and everything we need in the right way. Jim Sweeney. The, the biggest changes right now in how we're de decarbonizing the energy system is cheap natural gas is pushing out coal. And that has nothing to do with the clean power plan or the politics of, of the coal producing states. It has to do with the high cost of eastern coal, uh, the, the mine coal, um, relative to the low cost of natural gas. And if you think about a utility executive right now, building a new generating plant that's gotta operate for 40 or 50 years, who would ever think about 
putting in a coal-fired plant when the cost of coal is only going up, rather than wind or solar or natural gas when all of those costs have gone down over time. Because again, smart executives aren't only looking at the next four years, they're looking down the road. So whether they're going to exactly meet the clean power plan or not, I don't know, it's different amongst, among different states. But across the United States, coal is being pushed out by wind, solar, and natural gas, and energy efficiency. And that really is what's cleaning up the system. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. Yes, um, Michael Warburton with the Public Trust Alliance. And the, the question I have in, in the move from federal to state leadership, um, what sort of opportunities do you see in a, um, a market economy that remembers uh, half of our law that essentially uh, water is a public trust, you know, that's supervised by the states, and um, public trust law is natural resources, environment, and forward thinking. And um, do you see any um, advantages and opportunities in remembering that uh, our water is a public trust. Thank you. Amy Jaffe, a lot of people will be affected by climate either by having too much or too little of, public, of, of water, and it is there are special rules governing water, the essence of life. No question. And, and, I, and I do think, you know, this gets back to what we've been talking about all along, about thinking about equitable ways um, to protect the public good, right? And, and I believe uh, I mean, I'm, I'm an economist and the, I'm in, you know, work in a business school and, you know, I understand all the financial forces. I've been helping the uh, uh, University of California's Office of the Chief Investment Officer look at ways to um, use investments um, for the pension fund and, and, and the university's endowment to look forward to these sort of sustainability investments because there are a lot of opportunities out there and over time there'll be more to really, you know, have bring in, you know, long-term investment dollars to bringing solutions. But that said, um, really truly, it has to be regulation. You know, all of these markets have to be regulated. The energy transition, you know, even James Baker, who identified himself on TV as a conservative, said we need to have a carbon price in this country. All right, and the regulations revound re, uh, how we handle water and how uh, we distribute goods if we're having weather or other kinds of crisis. I mean, it, it takes government and it takes responsible government. And on the investing side, uh, recently shareholders of ExxonMobil did something remarkable. 60 some percent of them said they want the company to disclose carbon risk to their business. So Amy Jaffe, how big a deal was that, that Chevron shareholders said, hey, you gotta tell us what the future risk is to your business and our profits? You know, it was so unbelievable to have these two simultaneous events that we're having this historic victory where shareholders who own stock in these companies and before the ExxonMobil decision, Occidental Petroleum, even higher amount of shareholders, 70-something percent of shareholders voted that Oxy needs to, dis to analyze and disclose how climate change is going to affect their business. This is a fundamentally important thing, and, um, and it can have great value. <clears throat> When some of the other companies have done this exercise, I use for an example Total of France, they've actually decided to shift billions of dollars of capital into renewable energy. And I understand that we like to villainize you know, the industry, but in the end, having companies that already have billions of dollars on their balance sheet shift some of those dollars into clean energy I mean, Shell is investing in hydrogen stations here in California and in Germany. Having big capital like that come in and try to scale up some of these technologies is beneficial for everyone. So the shareholders did an amazing job. 
you know, they should stay with it and force these companies to analyze the transition, analyze their positive role in the transition, and get this capital deployed where it needs to be deployed. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. Yes, in, in light of the abdication of responsibility of the federal government, what can people do either individually or collectively to try to improve the situation? And I'm not talking about you know, living more efficiently or buying a hybrid car. I mean, collectively, should we be looking at, you know, ballot measures on, on the state, state ballot to, I don't know, fund uh, energy storage research or, you know, pushing our state government to work collectively with other state governments to try to form alternative uh, regimes for regulation or standards for improvement? Thank you. What can people do beyond just, you know, uh, eating less meat, personal virtuous behavior? Jim Sweeney? Uh, I think local cities can start providing role models and uh, both in renewables and energy efficiency that uh, use the bully pulpit to start changing, experimenting. The significance of individual cities experimenting, if the experiment goes wrong, it's just a small number of people that have affected, you know, a, a hundred thousand people, maybe. If it goes right, it's models that can be continued, uh, picked up by other, other municipalities, other cities. <coughs> That's actually been a large part the way our environmental regulation started by individual states experimenting. California was the key one. So I think you push at the local levels for being a little bit bold about what you're doing in energy and create the bully pulpit and then talk about it afterwards. Certainly push that at the state levels too. And then in industry, people in companies can sort of demand for their employers to have more fuel energy efficient buildings to get renewables to move forward because companies care about what their workers are doing because they need them. So I, I think there's a lot that can be done beyond the individual choices that, that really working institutionally. Greg Dalton has been talking with Gil Duran, former spokesman for California Governor Jerry Brown and U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein, and currently an advisor to billionaire climate advocate Tom Steyer. Amy Jaffe, executive director of sustainability at the University of California Davis Graduate School of Management, and Jim Sweeney, director of the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. Please join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One is a special project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Jane Ann Chen is the producer. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel is our booker and associate producer. The audio engineer is William Bloom. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich are the editors. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is presented in association with KQED Public Radio.